Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And Lauren, I kind of wanted to uh, start things off with something that we need to do more of. We absolutely do. You brought this up. You said we have got to do more of this. I completely agree. We're going to go back a little ways to something that we used to do on Tech Stuff all the time. And ladies and gentlemen, yes, I am talking about a return to (gasps) listener mail. I don't know why I leaned back from the microphone. Probably, as, as yeah, though, like, like that. I was going to save your ears. save my ears because I'm wearing headphones. I didn't do a long time listeners of Tech Stuff realize that I used to do a big listener mail thing, but we know no, your ears are delicate. There's also a klaxon. And, yeah, I we're mean, not, we're not going to, we're not going to subject you to all that. It's a kinder, gentler Tech Stuff, but we do have some <laughs> amazing listener mail that we wanted to talk about. And in fact, this one was incredibly long. There were, there were, Three big suggestions in it, and so we had to pare it down. So I'm just going to read the part that refers that we're back actually to doing yeah. for this episode. Right. So it goes, hi, guys. Thanks for making the podcast. I listen all the time at work as I drive so much. My favorite episodes are the really long ones where you really get stuck into the history of a company like the Amazon podcast. I'm guessing you must have loved the HBO trilogy. But here goes uh, the actual request. The HMS Victory and HMS Warrior are interesting subjects, partly because the Victory is still a commissioned ship in the Royal Navy and is the oldest commissioned warship in the world. The Constitution in the United States of America is the oldest still afloat, but also because the technology used was amazing for its time. The HMS Warrior had such strong armor that they used modern weapons at the time to test the armor fired at point-blank range. Keep up the great work, Simon. Well, Simon, thank you very much. We're going to talk specifically about the victory, because as we were doing our research and and building out the history for this, uh, we realized we could not truly do justice to both subjects if we tried to cram them into a single episode. All right, because I don't know about you guys, but I was not, you know, really intimately familiar with the technical workings of warships uh, up until I did this research. And there's a lot to them. There's so many, I mean, really cutting edge naval technology was being used to create these things. And so we really wanted to go in-depth into what this thing looked like and how it was constructed. And even to do that, you had to go back and look at the history of the British Navy because the whole evolution leading up to the victory was very important to understand Mm -hmm. why those developments were so instrumental in the victory being such a powerful ship. So uh, first things first, before we even go into the history... I think it's time for us to take a little tour. And Lauren, I'm going to you're going to be happy to know right outside the studio. I've set up an entire pier with a ship docked there. So I'm going to take you on a tour of a boat so I can show you what everything is. Oh, that's truly incredible is Atlanta is landlocked. But uh, but I'm impressed by by this modern technology that you have used to accomplish this. Simon's email was inspirational and I could do no less. So it's truly a beautiful day. So, yes. So let us let us go. Let us travel to this ship. All right. So now, Lauren, if you take a look at this ship here, you see this front part where the 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 hull of the ship is is it's curving down into the water. Uh-huh. So the front part of the ship is called the bow, okay. right? So everything that's toward the direction of the bow when you're on a ship is called fore. Mm-hmm. So if you're walking forward, exactly. So if you're walking forward toward the bow, you're walking fore. Everything behind you is aft because it's after, right? Ah, okay. Now the back part of the ship is the stern. So if you walk aft, you're walking toward the stern. Now, you gotta learn your left from your right. Oh, 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 I actually know this one. 
Okay, so the left side of the ship, if you're if you're facing four, yes. if you're facing the bow, mm-hmm. is the port. Yes. And the right side is starboard. That's right. Uh, although in the old, old days, port was also known as larboard. So you had larboard and starboard. That's much better. Why did that's? I mean, I, I okay. I guess I it can sounds see where that a little similar. Yeah. When you're yelling, if you're shouting, pirates off the larboard bow. Then you might, you know, people say, did you say starboard or larboard? Which which gun do I fire? Uh, there's going to be a lot of accents in this episode. Folks. It's left, right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. But, well, let's see. Let's just call it port, and it's easy to remember. <laughs> you just hold up both your hands, and whichever one makes the pee. Oh, wait a minute, that's not right. <laughs> No, no, no. If you have a hook, it works. That's true. If you do. All right. So then, <laughs> as long as your left hand was the one that was cut off, you're in good shape. Uh, so Captain Hook, not so good because his right hand was cut off in the oh, book. Oh, was it? Uh, oh. Well, only in the book. And the Disney movie is different. You know, we're getting a little off track. Okay, let's get back okay. to this, this tour. Yes. So we've got the, the port and the starboard side. Also, the uh, apocryphal story that the reason why we call Posh Posh is because it stands. it's an acronym that stands for Port Out Starboard Home. As in, those are the sides that face. Oh, what? But that's that's a That's not okay. No, but it's commonly said. So, top deck of the ship, the weather deck, so called, because it's exposed to the elements. Okay. Uh, the you, you don't call them floors on a on they're, a boat. They're, decks. they're decks. Yeah. yeah. So you can go down below decks, but there are multiple decks in warships in particular. Mm-hmm. So typically, that deck has several raised areas. The front is spelled forecastle, but it's pronounced forecastle. Sure. Okay, just like the the person who's in charge of overseeing sailor discipline on a ship is spelled boatswain, but it's pronounced bosun. I'm I'm willing to accept your word for yeah, it. Yeah, there's something about the English. They just like to drop entire syllables and and letter sounds out of their words until you 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 hear it and you think, how do you spell that? Oh, it's spelled forecastle, but it's pronounced forecastle. So that's in the front of the ship. You know, it's four castle. So mm-hmm. when you when you break it down like that, it makes sense. It's in the forward part of the ship, and it's a raised portion of the deck. So uh, this is generally used as a place for uh, soldiers to stand. And so if your ship is being boarded, they're on a raised platform where they can oh, fire down yeah. onto the uh, boarding the enemy. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the idea is always get that that elevated position. Then you have the uh, quarter deck, which is really the last quarter of the ship uh, that's in the aft part. This tends to be lower, right? It doesn't ne- not necessarily raised up. You might have a waist in the middle, which is a, a depression in the middle of your ship. That's where you would put boats. Boats, by the way, I'll go ahead and say this, even though I have it later in my notes. A boat, here's how technical we get, is a small enough vessel to fit aboard a ship. And a ship is a large enough vessel to carry a boat. Just like a mountain is larger than a hill, and a hill is smaller than a mountain. It's one of those definitions that is I'm, not at all useful. I'm really. glad that that's extremely clear. For yeah, but that's the way that's the way it works. So then, in the very aft of the ship, uh, in most warships, you have another raised deck. Now, this deck is the infamous poop deck. Poop deck. The poop. Uh, I heard another possibly apocryphal tale. That the reason it is called a poop deck has nothing to do with evacuation. <laughs> it has okay. to do with the fact that if you were to have uh, visitors aboard your ship, you would probably put them on board this deck. It's in the very back so they can see everything that's happening because it's raised up. It's in the back. You're, you're out of the way of all the action because mm-hmm. all the sailors are having to deal with the sails that are in the main part of the ship. And uh, they would be, get, quote unquote, pooped, which I assume means amused 
when they would see waves coming aboard, uh, coming over the side and dousing the sailors, while, whereas they're up, up elevated. Up and dry. Yeah. yeah so <sighs> stay classy. All right. So <laughs> then you've got the deck below the top deck, which is commonly called the gun deck. Uh, now, there may or may not be guns on the gun deck. Typically, on your ships, you would have the cannon on the weather deck, so the top deck. Okay. Right? The gun deck might not have any guns on it at all. It may just be used for the mess, which is where you eat, Mm -hmm. and also the place where you would bunk for the night. Except instead of bunk, you would hammock. Uh, So, uh, Or if you were in a really old ship, you had a rope that you would lean on to fall asleep. Oof. Yeah. No, those were rough days. Um, also, sometimes in, in uh, older ships, you would just have to sleep on the deck of the, the ship. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you, the cannons on the top deck, if it were a really sophisticated warship, there would be uh, multiple gun decks and there would be cannons on each one. Eventually, they started figuring out, hey, we should put the heavy cannons toward the, the lower decks because uh, they provide more stability. Right. But you can't go too low because then you're below the waterline. And if and- you open up a port, then that's not. Right. You're, you're A, sinking your ship, and B, not really effectively shooting at anything. No, no. Um, Gunpowder, when it gets wet, not terribly useful. Yeah. Okay, but let's, let's go back up above decks. Okay. Uh, sure. And, uh, what are, what are these, what are these giant poles? They, they uh, seem to be masts of yes, some kind. Yes, those would be masts. And you typically would have multiple masts aboard these ships. You might hear of a three master. Or a four master. These refer to the number of masts on the ship. The masts, of course, are the poles upon which the sails hang. You have some uh, some bars that are horizontal uh, that are supported by the masts. Those horizontal bars are called yards. So if you ever heard yard arm, that is referring to these these horizontal poles. Those support the sails. And of course, sails are what provide the propulsion. Aboard these ships, you know, you're using wind power. Uh, right, right. And there's a few different different types of sails. Yeah, lots of different types of sails, and some of them are very specific to specific masts. So, if you have, let's say, a three mast ship, your your first mast is the fore mast. That's the one closest to the bow. So it's the one closest to the fore. Mm-hmm. You might also have a bowsprit, which is uh, an extension of the bow. That goes up. So if you've ever seen one that has like a really long pole that extends out, kind of like a nose yeah, on the yeah. ship, that's the bowsprit. Okay. Or, or bowsprit, depending upon how you want to pronounce it. Uh, that may also have some sails attached to it. But then you have the foremast. Next, you would have the mainmast, or main mast. And then you have the mizzen mast in the very back. Uh, if you have a really big ship, like a, a foremaster, you might also have a bonaventure mast. Uh, these would have the sails. And like you said, there are different kinds of sails. Uh, they're jibs, which are triangular sails that are usually found in the front of the ship, uh, attached to the bow and the bowsprit. Uh, you have square sails, which would be the top sails, the main sails, and the top gallant, or to gallant, I should say, and the royal sails, which are at the very, very top. Ah, so these are these cute. are the square ones. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And then you've got these other kind of weird trapezoidal shaped sails called spankers. Again, keep it classy, kids. Yeah, having spankers aboard your ship, it's a good thing. Your bosun might be one of them. Uh, but yeah, no, we're talking about sails here. Well, but they are at the stern. Of, of the ship yes. by the poop deck. Yes, they are. Yeah, the spankers are by the poop. <laughs> <sighs> I'm so I'm so mature. I'm sorry. Guys. No, no, no. It's fine. I was I was gonna go the same way, and, and it's amazing that we haven't completely fallen apart already. No, so you know the the other big uh, picture of 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 sailing vessels, the 
the sailor at the helm, the the wheel, the ship's wheel, where the sailor's gripping the wheel tightly. There's probably like some sort of storm going on yeah, yeah, leading yeah. into it. And then much much like car driving on TV, you just you just tw- twist that thing everywhere. Yeah, no. Uh, okay, first of all, ship wheels were a, a relatively late invention as huh. far as warships are concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ship's wheel didn't come into play until the beginning of the 18th century. Now, oh, the, wow. now the, the Victory had a ship's wheel because that uh-huh. was built in the mid 18th century. But anything that was built before the early 18th century did not use a wheel. It used what was called a whip staff or a tiller. So this is essentially like you know a, a big tiller. It's like a, a lever that you would like a joystick. Kind of, except it was horizontal, not vertical. You would lean against it to the right or to the left in order to. Uh, maneuver the ship. And the wheel was meant to emulate that, but doing it through a system of, of essentially ropes and pulleys. pulleys. Yeah. So, um, and in fact, it took a while for them to perfect the way of, of creating the right tension so that you wouldn't end up with slack or too much tension with the wheel and thus, uh, you would affect the maneuverability of a ship. So that concludes our tour. We have seen the basic ship here. Uh, you know, just, you know, I guess we could have mentioned that most of these ships also had a large cabin for the captain mm-hmm. or the commander of the vessel to stay in. That cabin typically ends up having at least one ma- major compartment for the commander of the ship. It's a little more comfortable. It's definitely more spacious than the crew quarters. And also, typically, it's used in battle situations as well. So even the captain's room ends up getting cleared out for battle and cannon will be rolled in oh, and wow. moved through gun ports. Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. Even there, every single bit of space that could be used for combat on these ships was done so. So if we want to really talk about the victory, we got to look back to some of the earlier ships that kind of led into its its being built. So if you look all the way back into the very beginning of the English Navy, you got to go back to the 15th century. So 1400s, this is when cargo ships called Carrick's were becoming a really popular design in all of Europe, not just England, but, you know, France and Spain, lots of countries use these kind of ships. They were either three or four masted ships, and they had a large aft castle, so very similar to uh, the forecastle. Uh, this would be on the aft side, obviously, the, okay. the stern side. Um, and they would use a lot of cannons, but they would all be on the top deck, uh, because at the time, no one could really figure out how to use cannons below decks that would not also risk the ship capsizing in the water due to due to water coming in through the gun ports. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were all on the top decks and uh, they were not terribly maneuverable. Uh, they were pretty top heavy with all those, with cannons. All those cannons up there. Sure. Yeah. So like you can imagine if you had to take a pretty dramatic turn to the to port or starboard that with that top heavy, you could capsize the ship pretty easily. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, that did happen. Uh, and one notable case that we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but those were the types of ships that were used by, uh, like, like Columbus and Magellan. Right? Absolutely, yeah. The, if you've heard about the, the, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, those were all Carricks. Uh, they, in fact, uh, as I recall, Columbus called one of them a cow because Aww. he felt that it steered that way. <laughs> So, uh, but then we move forward into the days of, uh, good King Henry VIII, one of the, most enlightened uh, egalitarian rulers in English history. Uh, that's what he's known for, I think, yeah, really. Yeah, that that and, you know, being brutal and uh, petty and uh, and petulant. Yes. Yes. Um, hey, look, I know King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII is a friend of mine. All right. So at the Georgia Renaissance Festival. <laughs> anyway, 
And the guy who plays him does it perfectly. Oh, he he's, does. He's, he's like he's like a three year old having a te- temper tantrum all day long. He's, he's jovial and and angry. Yeah, it's, it's terrific. At any moment, he could he could demand for your head on a pike. But Henry the Seventh, so Henry the Eighth's father, was the first king to really start to establish an official navy. Although although most of his naval ships were converted merchant ships. Yes, that's exactly right. They weren't designed to be warships. Mm-hmm. He he was essentially saying, "Hey, that boat you have." It belongs to to the crown now, <laughs> and merchants be like, All right, "I guess I work for you now." All right, I, <laughs> if you're paying the checks, so uh, yeah. So Henry VIII decided to start commissioning actual warships to be built for the English Navy, and one of the first ones was called the Mary Rose, named after one of Henry VIII's siblings, a beloved sister of his, who and, did not lose her head. No, no, Mary Rose did not lose her head. Um, yeah, so the Mary Rose was a pretty phenomenal ship. They, they they managed to do a couple of different things. First of all, it was one of the first ships of the English Navy to have a Carvel hull. So there are two major types of hulls at the time that this ship was built. There was the Carvel style and the clinker style. The clinker style was older, and it was done by overlapping boards so that think of it like shingles on a roof. Okay. So that's what the hull was like. It wasn't smooth. Huh. It was the shingled appearance. That sounds like the opposite of of water dynamic. It was. Uh, um, what's, what, yeah. What's the word? No, Hy- that's hydrodynamic. hydrodynamic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was not as maneuverable. It also had lots of other problems. You could end up having leaks, leaks as well. Yeah. Uh, Carvel was a way of uh, having these be end to end. That's where you get that smooth ship appearance, and uh, and it was. Uh, kind of a revolutionary way of building ships. And it also made them uh, even sturdier, actually, the way that they came to to build these and put them together. Uh, you had a, a keel that that's the backbone of your ship, and then you put a frame on it, and then you would lay out the boards to be side by side and, and watertight. That's an important part. Yeah. <laughs> they put a lot of caulk in there to keep it watertight. Good. Yes. So, yeah. Otherwise, your ship is not so much a ship as it is a collection of boards that is going to get you very wet very soon. So... Then another innovation that came about was due to Henry saying, hey, I want more guns on this thing. Henry had a lot of enemies in Europe. He did not make friends easily. I I can't imagine why. Actually, he made friends pretty easily, but he forgot them really easily, too. So, yeah, he, he decided that he wanted to have gun ports cut into the side of the hull in order to have more cannons aboard. Uh, and shipbuilders were not excited about this idea. As we discussed earlier, cannons yeah. were typically kept on the top decks at the time because they were afraid of, uh, I mean, anytime you've got extra holes in the side of your ship. Yeah, you got a place where water can come in, yeah. especially during stormy weather. That right. was the big one. Uh the actual weather phenomenon, not the song. So they wanted to have some way of having these gun ports useful without sinking the ship. So they, the shipbuilders ended up coming up with an innovation for special gun ports that had these covers, these heavy lids that could slam down in place and were watertight when they were closed, but then could be opened for action or battle so that the cannon could be wheeled out on these big gun carriages. We'll talk about those in a little bit in the second half, but then you could, you know, wheel the, the guns out and fire. And this would allow you to have guns still above the waterline, obviously. You can't go below it. But it would uh, also provide ability to have more stability at the, the base of the ship. Not that it helped out the Mary Rose. You see, the Mary Rose, well, she was um, a pretty spectacular ship. Her, her full crew component was supposed to be around 400 men. That's a big, big ship. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of the boats I've been on, like even even the ships I've been on, have been schooners, which 
would never have supported. Like maybe, maybe a crew of a dozen would be right, but 400. Now on a raiding party, like if you wanted to go and invade, say, France, which, you know, Henry wanted to do that all the time. Uh-huh. If you wanted to do that, then that number could swell up to 700 people aboard this one ship. And Oof. keep in mind, it was, it was shoulder to shoulder if you had 400. So crew quarters were incredibly tight if it was completely full like that. So in 1545, so we're talking more than 30 years after she had been launched, uh, the Mary Rose sank. And it might have been because she was too top heavy. She was, it was on a, a, a mission to uh, blockade some French ships to, mm-hmm. it was during a, an actual altercation with France. And as she was taking a turn, uh, the story is that she took a bad wind. The wind hit her at just the right angle, just as she was making a tight turn. And she was so top heavy that she capsized. Yeah. She started to turn over and then those, those lids were opening up and that was allowing water in through the gun ports uh. and then it sank. Hundreds of skeletons have been Oof. recovered from this uh, this wreck. At least I think it's something like 129. So maybe not hundreds, but more than a hundred. Um, so yeah, it, it was uh, the the wreck has been largely recovered. It was I think in the 1970s rediscovered. Pretty phenomenal. So this style of ship ended up being the style of choice during Henry's reign and for the first part of uh, Elizabeth's reign as well. Keeping in mind, we had a couple of monarchs in between the two. Uh, sure. But then Elizabeth also began to look at a different type of ship. So you, in 1587, you had Sir Walter Raleigh commissioning the HMS Ark Raleigh. It was a galleon class ship. So no, no longer Carrick class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, galleon from the old French word galleon, or meaning little ship, um, to mean really freaking huge ship. Yeah, because that's the way language works. Yep. The Spanish were really well known for their galleons. The Spanish fleet was mainly of galleons. But this one was uh, bought, and I use the term loosely, by Queen Elizabeth I in 1587 for 5,000 pounds. Uh, yeah, yeah, bought because, well, R- Raleigh was, was constantly in debt, wasn't he? Yeah, he owed the crown a lot of money. So really, by bought, she just cut his debt by 5,000 pounds. And I guess he didn't really have anything to say about that, which... Okay, let's let's be clear here. Elizabeth I was no Henry VIII, but she inherited some of Hank's, you know, attitude. Yeah, she was a uppity. Can I can I call? She was she was determined. Ah. You know, she was absolutely determined, and in every way that is great, because she was able yes. to maintain her stance and power. She was able to maintain England's sovereignty. She she made the hard choices that needed to be made. She did. She did. But um. She, uh, yeah, uppity is probably the worst possible word she for, definitely for a woman a, of that power she, and and yeah. capacity. As as she said in Black Adder, she had the constitution of a concrete elephant. <laughs> uh, but yes, so anyway, this galleon class huge improvement over the carrot class. So it had two gun decks: it had an upper gun deck, the weather deck, and a lower gun deck, which was actually one deck down. Uh, it had a double forecastle, a quarter deck, and a poop deck. Uh, the two gun decks were uh, incredibly, uh, effective. The helmsman controlled the ship via tiller on the poop deck. So the poop deck was, uh, elevated enough so that the helmsman could navigate and see hmm. over the forecastle. Cause okay. otherwise you, you, yeah. you're kind of looking at, you're looking at a ship and you're thinking like, yeah, I know I need to steer it, but I can't see any it's landmarks. Not like they had a video screen. Right. So, so yeah, you couldn't pull it. <laughs> There's a Spanish galleon off the port bow. Like, bring it up on screen. <laughs> no, that wouldn't work. <laughs> You couldn't no make it so back in this day. No. But the Galleon class, again, big leap forward. So we start seeing an evolution in various shipbuilding and ship classes 
over this time. Now, for a large part, they are just improvements over existing types of ships. By the time you get to the uh, 18th century, you start seeing a new type of ship, and it's all based upon the the same kind of stuff that Henry was concerned with. See, the reason why Henry really wanted to have those extra gun decks is so that they could do a maneuver called broadsides. Broadsides where you present the broad side of your ship, so you know you're not coming straight at your mm-hmm. enemy. You present the broad side because that's where all your cannons are. Uh, yeah, that's the useful bit for you. Yeah. And especially if you can catch another ship um, as it's coming straight on, head yes. on towards you, you can fire very effectively at them before they have time to really fire at you. Right. So laying on broadsides means you just fire all the guns on that side facing the enemy vessel and you're you're bound to do some pretty major damage. So with that tactic in mind, it started to guide shipbuilders in the way they wanted to build warships. So by the uh, the early to mid 18th century, they, the board of admiralty began to order new ships of the line. And a ship of the line was designed specifically for this. The battle tactic was that you would line up all of your ships in a column. So you would have your various ships of the line built for war, one behind the other. And then ideally, when you came upon your enemy, you would maneuver in such a way where your entire line of ships can all lay on broadsides in a, in a sequence against your enemy. And it, it was devastating. So if you made a mistake in that maneuvering phase, you, it was game over. Oh, I mean, sure. It was almost guaranteed to end up causing uh, you know failure. So they ordered 12 of these in 1758. And uh, one of those would be the HMS Victory. And uh, they wanted to have big gun decks. They wanted to be able to withstand a lot of damage. And so it had to be uh, something really, really spectacular. And this was also the same year that a particular person who ends up being incredibly important in the history of the HMS Victory was born. Uh, Lord Nelson. That's yes. correct. So Lord Nelson, very important figure in history. This is sort of becoming a Stuff You Missed in History class episode. But, uh, you know, we got a lot more to say, and we're going to talk specifically about the Victory and what made her so special in just a moment. But before we do that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, we're back. And now it's 1765 and the HMS Victory is ready to launch. It had been uh, prepared in the old single dock in Chatham's Royal Dockyard. And she was a pretty useful ship. They she she saw action in lots of engagements, not Mm -hmm. just not just the most famous one, which everyone remembers the, the Battle of Trafalgar. I mean, I remember it. You were there. Well, you know, not personally, but I've, I've seen I've seen statues <laughs> and I've read about it. But uh, also she was used in the American Revolution, not by the Americans, obviously. Uh, also, the French War of Independence, the French Revolution, uh, the Napoleonic War. Clearly, you know, that's another one. And then um, was the flagship of Vice Admiral Nelson. So she would end up being recommissioned in 1808. We'll talk specifically about that in a little bit, but uh, also then was serving in the Baltic. Um, she switched to harbor service uh, eventually, which meant that she was kind of used for dignitaries. It was a residence. It was a tender boat. Like it was kind of the, the English Navy's way of saying, we're really proud of this particular ship. She has served us well. We don't want to scrap her. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of out to pasture, but not in the dead way. Yeah. And the look at this really beautiful old cow. Right. Way. Yeah. She's 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 a good old cow. <laughs> She's a good old cow. And, and as far as I know, no one ever described her as a cow. Um, she actually steered quite well. So let's talk about what went on with the construction of this thing. I mean, it was a massive undertaking. This was not as big a ship 
as some of the ones that Henry had commissioned back in his day, Mm -hmm. but was so sophisticated and so well put together that it required a lot of work. So the construction crew of the HMS Victory was a sizable one of around 250 men. And according to the resources I was looking at, they looked at a lot of uh, a lot of wood. Uh, yeah, like like a hundred acres of forest. That's some um, six thousand mature oak trees. Um, were used to provide the wood for the ship, along with some fir, elm, and pine. Yep. Um, mostly all taken from the forests of Kent and Sussex. Which is good because if it taken from the hundred acre wood, Winnie the Pooh would be homeless. Now at that time, trees were selected carefully for their size. Right? They had to they had to sit there and look specifically. Like, well, we need this size to make these certain planks, and not only that, but there were certain natural Parts of trees that became in really useful. Uh, yeah, yeah. The the largest of them were were like these oaks that were thirty feet high. Uh, others were forked or had these special Y shaped branches that would allow for particular bits to be made from a single piece of wood, thus making it stronger than it otherwise would be. Right. Instead of having to make a joint between two pieces of wood, the natural joint of the Y shaped oak meant that they didn't have to to engineer that. It was already built into it. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have to worry about that being a weak point. It was pretty phenomenal. So they they built the keel first. That, of course, is the backbone. That's the, the part that runs along the very bottom like of the ship. Kind of skeleton, yeah. Yep, and then they, they built the frame. And normally what you would do is you would season the wood for the ship. Uh, and, and by season, we mean uh, dry it out. Yeah. You want to get all the moisture out. You want it to you want those boards to shrink as much as they can possibly shrink because wood does shrink as it uh-huh. loses moisture. Uh, and if you and if you shrink it after it's built, then you've got that loose collection of planks. Yeah. that's going to get you very wet. You like get a Jonathan leaky boat. Yeah, yeah. A leaky boat. And, and also, you know, this would also mean that the ship itself would be more resilient to damage. Uh, it would be stronger. Right. So. Normally, you would season wood over several months because you don't want to take too long. Usually, these ships, when they're being built, they're being built for a specific purpose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You've got an order out, and so it kind of needs to be filled in a certain period of right. time. Maybe but... maybe war is going on or war is imminent. And uh-huh. so there's a there's a, a, a very strong incentive to, to get this thing built. Uh, but in this case, the wood wound up being seasoned over a period of several years. Yeah, because peace broke out. Ugh. Yeah, I know. It's so irritating. You're sitting there. You're like, ah, oh, man, 12 ships of the line. <laughs> peace breaks out. And then suddenly everyone's like, well, it's a bunch of workers just kicking the dust. Yeah, no need for us to build that. There's no no rush now. Might as well just leave that wood under the canvas. So it, it seasoned for three years as opposed to six months. So it was well and truly seasoned by the time the victory construction uh, started up again. And it meant that the ship, when it was fully built, was much more resilient than it would have been if it had just been seasoned for a few months. So it ended up being a, a great thing for the ship. Um, even though I'm sure the people who were designing it and building it and paying for it were a little irritated. Now, the upper deck has a lot of, uh, nails in it. You know, you gotta, you gotta hammer down all the planks so that it's a sturdy place for people to, people and cannons to travel across. So that means that you had to have a lot of nails. And it, I thought it was fascinating that the, um, if you were to take all the iron and copper nails out of the upper deck, first of all, the British would be so mad at you. Super, super mad. Yeah, the, Don't you, do that. Like, you just took the top of our boat. Uh, your ship. I know, it's a ship. <laughs> but it would be two tons oh. of iron and copper nails just just for that upper deck. Now, the bottom of the hull 
Uh, you have was, an interesting note here. Yeah, it's coated in more copper sheeting. Well, okay, originally it was coated in a mixture of oil and brimstone, and this was in order to keep stuff like barnacles off of the sides sure. of, of the ship to prevent damage to it. Um, eventually in 1780, that would be replaced by a, a coating of copper sheeting to to really keep the um, the shipworms out of it, which aren't worms at all, but rather burrowing salt, saltwater clams. Yeesh. Yeah, nobody nobody wants that. No, that's that's bad news. So yeah, it ended up uh, being a little bit a little bit on the expensive side. Uh, in the time that it was built, it cost sixty three thousand one hundred seventy six pounds sterling, which is now close to about twenty million pounds, uh, which is almost thirty four million in U.S. dollars as of this afternoon's exchange rates. Wow, yeah. So not not a cheap boat ship. No. It's a ship. <laughs> So let's talk about how how uh, how she measures up. Okay. So she's she's 227 feet long, which is uh, 69 meters, and she's 51 feet 10 inches wide at her widest point, which is nearly 16 meters. And if you wanted to completely deck out this ship, like you wanted every single post filled, how many people would would it be? 821. That one would be the captain. Ah. Or Nelson for when it was his flagship. But yeah, 821. So that means that you would actually uh, divide that up into um, to 460 men uh, for a shift, and then the rest would be taking care of the ship. Uh, so we'll talk about that in a little bit, too, because life aboard a ship was special, y'all. <laughs> so she was designed to carry 100 cannons on three gun decks. So doing, doing one Ooh, better for okay. Henry VIII's yeah, ships. Yeah. Three gun decks. So you had the weather deck, the top deck. That one had some guns. Then you had the next deck down, the mid gun deck. And then next one down was the lower gun deck. And they also, uh, if you looked at the gun decks, the heavier guns are on the lowest gun deck. Makes and then, sense. Yeah. Sure. Except for the, the two heaviest of them all. But I'll talk about those special in a second. So total, she had 104 guns during the Battle of Trafalgar. So she had the, the you know, the 100 cannons plus four. Um, her first broadside during that battle would have weighed 1.25 tons. Oof. So, yeah, if you added up all the shot that came out of that broadside, that's how heavy it would be. And it was actually a greater armament on board that ship than was used by the entire British Army during the Battle of Waterloo. Wow. So if you looked at all the artillery yeah. that they used, that was dwarfed by what was on this one ship. Uh, okay, but you said that there were different types of cannons on yeah. there, right? Yeah, so you often will hear about cannons being referred to as as a certain like number and then called pounder. Uh, and that's not the pound weight of the cannon. No, at no. At all, because I mean, because some of them are like 32 pounders. Yeah, or... yeah, 32 pounder. You're like, well, that, that cannon doesn't sound, I could carry a 32 pound cannon. That's like no. my dog. Yeah, no, 32 pounder refers to the weight of the shot being used, not the weight huh. of the cannon. Okay. So the cannon was weighing more like 3.5 tons. Now you put them on a carriage, so they'd actually be on a, on a, a thing that has wheels, right? Mm-hmm. It would have like two wheels and it, or four wheels and be on this carriage. And the carriage itself would be secured to the ship by giant ropes. Because here's the thing, when you fire a cannon, you get that uh, opposite reaction and mm-hmm. the cannon rolls backward, right? So the ropes have to be there, otherwise the cannon rolls goes, all, Hunk. yeah, yeah. You just lost half your crew because you fired a gun. Um, it, so the 32 pounders were firing 32 pound shot. Those were on the lower gun deck. So your mid gun deck had 24 pounder guns and the upper deck had the 12 pounder guns, but then you had the two biggins. They were smashers. These were 68 pounders. They fired shot that weighed 68 
pounds. They were meant to be used at the very fore of the ship when you were aiming, like you were heading toward a ship so that you could just completely decimate that thing before you even get there. And I know decimate means that I would only really eliminate 10% of the ship. They would colloquially Colloquially decimate. decimate. Thank you. <laughs> so shooting one of these guns was an incredibly complex affair. You had a crew of six per cannon. And each person on that crew had a very specific duty. And they would be numbered, actually, numbers one through six rather than names, because in battle, you really can't hear a whole lot. So you wanted to simplify things as As much as possible. possible. Yeah. So number one would be the person whose job it is to aim and fire the cannon. Then you had people whose job it was to raise or lower the barrel of the cannon with a spike. Uh, they would be on either side and one of them would be number two and the other one would be number five because you numbered them by the, by going around the cannon. So two and five, they were in charge of, of adjusting the height of the barrel and they had to use spikes to do it because otherwise, you know, you'd have to have the leverage. You would never be able to lift this on your own. Then you had uh, a person whose job it was to sponge the gun. So, or well, actually number three technically would be the person loading it. So they'd be loading it with the shot and with the powder. But then number four would be sponging the gun. Now sponging, means that you would use a wet sponge to plunge down the barrel of the cannon after you had just fired it. The reason for this would be to extinguish any still-burning gunpowder because you want to load the next powder in for the next shot. And if you did it while there was still something burning in there, you could prematurely... You could yeah. yeah. So then you just lose that powder, plus you could possibly end up seriously injuring or killing someone on your crew. So this was a very important part of it. And then you had the powder monkey. Powder Monkey was usually a kid, usually one of the youngest members of the crew, usually small and quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their job was to run down to where the all the sh- all the uh, the the powder was kept and fetch more powder. Exactly. So that was their job was to make sure that the cannon was still having uh, uh, enough powder. And if it didn't, then they had to run down and grab some more. So, uh, yeah, you would fire this this cannon. You would actually uh, it would rocket back after it was fired you would have the sponger sponge it really quickly to extinguish everything. You would have the loader loaded up and then you would have to have the whole crew pushing this three and a half ton carriage to move it back into position out the gun port. So you could fire it again. Now, if you were on the top deck, the weather deck, you didn't have to move over it out of gun port. You just had to get it over, get it to the, to the, the starting side. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you would still have to move it, but it wouldn't be like trying to aim for the little gun port anymore. Uh, and they used different types of shot, yeah, uh, the, yep. in- including cannonballs. Yep, that's so uh, do damage to the hull of the enemy ships or sure. possibly a fort if you're aiming at that, that kind of thing. Uh, bar shot. Ooh, yeah, that's to uh, take out rigging. So rigging is the stuff that, uh, think of it like tension wires that help hold a mast up. If you've ever seen the stuff that people are quickly climbing up mm-hmm. and it looks like a little, uh, like a cargo net type thing, mm-hmm. that's the rigging. The rigging is designed so it distributes the forces that are put against a mast, particularly when the sails are unfurled, so that it doesn't snap in half. So, yeah, that that bar shot destroys rigging and sails, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chain shot as well, correct? Yeah, chain shot, yeah, super nasty. So imagine two balls with a chain connecting them. It would fly out and hit things like a mast and end up splintering the mast so you could knock a mast down in a single hit if it was aimed just right. Or, you know, cut like three or four sailors in half that could happen too. yay uh a grape shot was okay. was, the, was the other great thing for yeah. killing a lot of people yeah it's essentially shotgun a uh, shotgun blast and it's just for a cannon so you've got lots of little uh little bits little bits 
Uh, th- these are also what those smashers that I talked about, they would often be loaded with grape shot because Ooh. you're on the forecastle. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you're, so, so up you're, you're, high, you're at a good high angle. So you aim you down can... at the other enemy ship and you just wipe out the people who are on it. Yeah, it's I mean, it's war. It's a brutal business. So, yeah, definitely tough stuff. So. Uh, so, OK, so down in, in those sleeping quarters. Yeah. Uh, so. I mean, did they have enough room to have everyone, I mean, all 821 people asleep in there at the same time? Well, first of all, the Admiral has his own room. Right. So 820. 820. No, they did not. That's a good question. But no, they did not. No, what they would do is they would sleep in shifts. Uh, Yeah. And most you would have 460 people asleep there. When they were eating, you might have 600 people in there. Uh, So the gun decks served as the crew sleeping quarters. So you didn't have any room to waste on one of these ships. So the crew did not have dedicated rooms to sleep in. Yeah. Yeah. It was not like a little, like, well, here's your stateroom. No, (laughs) that wasn't it. And and, and there was a huge scramble to to get everything out of the way whenever you had to roll the cannons out. Yeah, you had to clear the decks. You had to immediately clear them. So the way it would typically work is that if you wanted to go to sleep uh, and it was your time to sleep, you would sling your hammock. Uh, on the, the gun deck and you were allotted 21 inches for your hammock and no more. So don't complain about cruise ships, y'all. Yeah, no, talk about, and, and these were all interconnected type hammocks too. So you were like shoulder to shoulder with the people next to you. Um, also there's no ventilation down there, uh, and very little light. So dark, stuffy, filled with men on, in hammocks. If, if Pirates of the Caribbean is sounding less and less sexy to you, it should. It's not an accurate <laughs> representation of what naval life is really like. Um, also, yeah, there's no way you could, you'd have to have a crew like three times the size yeah. of any of those ships. But and, anyway. And very few of them were Johnny Depp. So. Yeah, no. And even the Johnny Depp ones, they were just Johnny Depp for that time. Much lower standards back then. Anyway, um, yeah, so you would have this really close space, closed in space where all of them would be sleeping at a time, like the, all of them being 460 of them. Uh, or if it was time to mess, to eat, you would have 600 at a time. You would have messmates. That would be about eight to 12 crew members that you would, con- those are the people you eat with. And the duty of the person to cook would rotate through the messmates. So, on a particular day, it might be your day to cook for your messmates. And the ship's cook would oversee all of that. Huh. So the ship's cook's job was really to make sure that nobody messed with the the galley and burned down the ship. Because anytime you're using any kind of heat on board a ship and on it's made out of wood. On board a wooden ship, yeah. yeah. So not not comfortable, not luxurious at all. Now, the, the Admiral's story is a little different, but we'll talk about that in a second. If you happen to get injured... Uh, not sick. They did have a sick quarters area, which was not a popular place to be. Uh, when you were sick, you didn't get your rum ration for one thing. So a lot of people, when they got sick, wouldn't report to the sick and Because bay. they wanted their rum. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't want to get out of your rum, so come Well, on. you know, I mean, and the thing was that, that, you know, you, you didn't get water on ships. No, because water would go bad. I mean, they would, they would keep water as much as they could, but they would have to freshen it all the time because, mm-hmm. Uh, the water would get scummy and nasty, so they ended up using beer most of the time instead. So each sailor was uh, given a, a, a ration of a gallon of beer a day and about, um, I think, a half pint of rum a day. But you would get it like a quarter at a time. And to be fair, at that point in history, a lot of people were drinking more alcohol than water because it was a much cleaner way of, of getting A, nutrients, and B, liquid. Yeah. So uh, at any rate, if you need to have surgery, facts. yeah. You need to have surgery, you go to the Orlop deck. Uh, surgery was pretty much 
which limb do you need lopped off? That was pretty much the, the, the extent of surgery. Um, history is so romantic. Yeah. But then you're able to tell your port from the starboard. Uh, and then you had the, the, uh, the actual construction of the ship, but she had three masts and a bowsprit. Uh, so each mast required seven trees to put one mass together. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they were bound together with these iron hoops and hundreds of yards of ropes. Originally, they they were um, they were larger than that. They, they they weren't seven trees bound together. But this was a construction that was implemented later on in the ship's life. Mm. And I understand that the tops of the mass were actually made out of a different type of wood for uh, a very specific reason. Yeah, fir and pine because they're so light and springy. So they wouldn't snap in the heavy winds. They mm-hmm. would they would bend with them. Yeah, you had 27 miles of rigging. That's that supportive rope structure I was talking about earlier that keeps the masts uh, safe by distributing those forces across the deck of the ship. And then we can talk about the sails. It had a lot of sails. Four, four acres worth of canvas. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of sails. And, um, and this was all hand woven, y'all. Yeah. It took something like I, I read that one sail, uh, one of the the largest sails took 1200 man hours to finish sewing. So that's incredible. Uh, they had, um, so 37 sales total, uh, 6,500 square yards or 5,428 square meters of and sale. And an additional 23 brought on board yep. just in case. Yeah. You know, you might have to replace a sale. You might have to repair one or swap one out. So, you know, anything could happen. So 23 extra sales, lots of canvas on board that ship. Uh, they also had 26 miles of rope. Although when you're on board a ship, you don't call it rope. You call it line. You pick up that line. You don't pick up the rope. I once got yelled at for talking about coiling rope. That's not rope. That's line. But I often use the wrong lingo in whatever situation I'm in. So I am a landlubber. I mean, I love boats and ships. I love all the lingo, but I'm certainly no No expert. Yeah. No, Mm -hmm. I just 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 someone who appreciates it. So the largest rope or line aboard this ship was built for the anchor. Which makes sense, right? So you want that to be pretty strong, sure. Yeah, like uh, like Hulk Hogan's pythons, uh, it was 19 inches in circumference. It's a big rope. Good to know. Yeah. So what you gonna do when the HMS Victory's anchor line goes wild over you? I guess not everything works in Hulk Hogan type <laughs> of uh metaphors. By the way, if you wonder how big 19 inches is in metric, we're talking 47 centimeters. Now, if you wanted to go to full sail where you're unfurling all the sails necessary to go as fast as you possibly can, by the way, you don't under nec- correct wind conditions because yeah. you don't want to just do that at any old time. Because, no, because the thing is, is, is that if you catch too much wind in your sails, you're going to potentially damage your masts or, or the rigging that's supporting right. the masts. Right. You don't necessarily like to go faster. It all depends upon what the situation is. You don't necessarily need to unfurl every single sail and then you go faster. It doesn't work that way. All depends upon the strength of the wind and the wind's direction. But if you wanted to go full sail, so however you want to interpret that, um, th- that was a big deal. I mean, it, it took, if you're especially if you're going from, you know, complete standstill to full mm-hmm. sail, it took uh, 120 crew members in order to do it. But uh, but but a experienced crew could do it in six minutes, reportedly. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. It's it's kind of like their gun crew. The HMS Victory was really proud of their gun crews who were able to fire and reload a cannon in 90 seconds. Oh, my goodness. Which is when you think about how complicated that that whole process is and how much you have to do 
Uh, it's pretty impressive that a minute and a half between shots I sounds also, like a long time. But. Yeah, yeah. I, I also read that they could um, that they could clear the decks and prepare the cannons for firing in a dead ten minutes. That's pretty incredible too, because you're talking about having to move everything else out of the way. Now, Grant, when you were done sleeping, you had to put your hammock up before you sure. got, went on duty. You know, it was, and some of the hammocks would be put up in the rigging, which could actually help. Uh, protect some of the the various parts of the ship should you come under fire. But then you had the galley, which had a single stove, one stove, and it wasn't a really big stove. You don't want a huge stove. You don't want to, again, you don't want to have a, a big risk. source of fire. Sure. Exactly. Uh, it had an automatic rotating spit for roasting animals, which was not done frequently. Uh, you could, if you were an officer, be allowed to bring a certain number of animals aboard to be slaughtered at your command to be served up for dinner, because usually you'd be eating... Uh, salt-packed meat, so it'd be really dry and tough, and you'd be eating hardtack biscuits. Jerky, yeah, yeah. Hardtack biscuits with lots of weevils in it. Yeah, well, I mean, the weevils are extra protein, right? Yeah. Well, you always choose the lesser of two weevils. But the um the don't blame me. Patrick O'Brien wrote that joke. Uh, so the spit, you might say, well, how is it an automatic spit? I mean, we're talking about a ship that was made in the mid 18th century. How could it be automatic? Aha, clever idea. So the stove has a chimney. You have to have a chimney to vent the smoke. Sure. Right. So in this chimney, they placed a fan. So the hot air would turn the fan. The fan was connected by pulleys to a rotating spit. So it would end up as the fan turned. It would turn the spit. Turn the spit. So you would actually have an automatic rotating spit to cook your delicious, recently slaughtered animal on. I'm assuming vegetarian. All right. So, <laughs> um, but no, it, you know, and again, luxurious treat if you're on board a ship. You yes. usually didn't have such, such luxuries. Yes. That's pretty incredible. Um, so yeah, we had the, talked about the beer. We talked about the rum. Uh, the Victory had seven anchors of various sizes. Uh, the two main ones were used to hold the Victory's position in deep water and were located on the starboard side. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, it could carry boats. Yeah, it carried not just one or two. It carried a, several boats, six of them. In six fact. boats. So first of all, no lifeboats. No lifeboats aboard the Victory. Why? Because it takes too much time to lower a lifeboat down to the water. It just was not a, a, a possibility. So... If uh if sailors were to fall off the ship, uh, it sucks to be them. Yeah, you might get a a uh, hammock thrown to you to make a kind of sort of flotation device. But yeah, and sailors were not swimmers. They most of them had no idea how to swim. Wow. Yeah, pretty incredible life. Like you are trusting your life to a vessel, and if you get off that vessel while it's in mid trip, you're pretty much See, doomed I, to die. Okay, no, that's that's cool. I, I I swim pretty well, and and I and I'm terrified of the open ocean for for, <laughs> for the reason that it's not like solid ground, and I don't like the idea of being able to just fall infinitely. That, I mean, not infinitely, but for no, a really yeah, long you do time. stop for that's, a while. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, but at any rate, so these boats, the six of them, there there were uh, there was a launch boat, which was the largest of all of them. It was 34 feet long or 10.3 meters. There was a barge, three cutters, and a pinnace. So a pinnace is a very small ship. It, pirates used them occasionally, but normally they were used as tender boats. And most of these were used as tender boats, which meant that you would get people to and from land to the ship or from another ship. Like if mm-hmm. you, if the admiral needed to meet with captains in a fleet, they would all tender over to the, usually to the admiral's flagship and have dinner aboard the flagship. But the, the other neat thing was that if the winds were calm and you needed to move the victory, 
what do you do? I mean, the Victory didn't have oars. It wasn't like a, a, a gal, a galley or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So they ended up using these boats to tow, to tow. Yeah. the Victory. So if the Victory were either too damaged, like the sails had been in tatters, or if the winds had been calmed, they could use these boats, many of which did have oars and actually tow it. It's not very fast, but it does work. Now, the Admiral's quarters we've saved for last. Now, these were relatively luxurious compared to everything else on board the ship. Not exactly, uh, you know, staying at the Ritz, but still much nicer. So the Admiral had use of the Great Cabin, which was located under the poop deck. As we said. So it's in the aft section of the ship, you know, the stern section. And uh, it took up one quarter of the upper gun deck. Oh, wow. And had four major sections to it. So it had like a a meeting room where the admiral could meet with people, had a dining room with a full dining table, uh, the bedroom area. He had his own um, toilets on on ships. They're called heads. Oh. I didn't mention the head. But, yeah, if you needed to go to the bathroom on board the HMS Victory and you were a common sailor, you had to go to the bow of the ship, mm-hmm. very front. And uh, down uh, at the bow were two benches that had holes in them right above the water. I've, I've heard that this could be a little bit precarious to get down into, that there was a certain amount of uh, scrambling. A little bit of dexterity needed. So, you know, don't <laughs> hold it for too long because that's just going to make things worse. Uh, yeah, you ended up having to, uh, to, to, to position yourself on a, on a, on a bench with a hole in it above the ocean and then do your duty and then climb back up to, uh, finish work. Now the, the officers were allowed to use a, more uh, secluded head that was on either side of the ship that had kind of semi-privacy, not a whole lot more than, say, the, oh, the bow, but a little yeah. more. First of all, they were the only ones allowed to use them. <laughs> they knew the Admiral had two in his quarters, uh, one on either side of the ship. So I guess, you know, he could hold it for as long as he wanted to. And I like, well, <laughs> I'm closest to this one. Um, so, uh, yeah. So and his was under the poop. Anyway. We we are we are setting head shaking records in this episode. I think. I th- well, you know what? Chris Paulette would be so proud of us right now. <laughs> he would be making so many more poop jokes though if he were here. So the admiral also had a swinging cot, like he had a cot that was suspended from the ceiling uh, that uh, that he slept in. It wasn't much larger than the hammocks that his men slept in, so it wasn't like he had a luxurious huge bed. Yeah, like, like... but but at least you're not bumping shoulders with all your exactly. Best yeah, and as we said, even the admiral's quarters would be cleared for action if there were some sort of battle, and cannon would be rolled in mm-hmm. there, and every single space would be used for it. So oh sure, sure, and and you had to clear everything out because um because it, it would create extra shrapnel if something oh, did come in through absolutely. the ship. Absolutely, you you didn't want any any extra stuff bumping around yeah. to, you know, impale you. Yeah, no, no. Impaling tends to be bad. Yeah. Um. So in around 1800 to 1803, the Victory had really large repair work done back at um at Chatham, yep. the, that royal shipyard that we mentioned it was built in, Um. during which a whole lot of things that we've just been talking about were implemented. She, she had fallen into some amount of disrepair during the 1780s or so, was refitted briefly as a hospital ship and very nearly ended up being a prison ship. Um, right up until the HMS Impregnable was not impregnable at all. Um, it yeah. was it was sank in 1799, and the Navy decided to send the Victory in for repair. If it had not, then uh, then the history would be very different. Mm-hmm. So th- we're going to talk about the the probably the most famous moment in the Victory's uh, uh, service as a ship in the English Navy. 
and later the British Navy. I guess we could just say it, the British Navy from the very beginning. Henry VIII had no problem with that. <laughs> Uh, although Scotland and Wales weren't always on board with it. Uh, no. So October 21st, 1805, the Battle of Trafalgar. So this was the most famous action that the victory played a part in. Uh, this was the one where Admiral Nelson led a fleet of 27 ships against Admiral Pierre Charles Villeneuve. Uh, Villeneuve had 33 ships, so 27 versus 33. And Nelson very um, uh, optimistically said, that the numbers didn't matter at all, and he expected to take at least 20 of Villeneuve's ships in this action. Okay. So Nelson was given, like, every opportunity to protect himself uh, and decided not to do it. Nelson was told, hey, you know, you can come and join this other ship, and we can watch the battle happen. Like, we can plan everything out, but you can come join me. You can come back here. Yeah, we'll hang out and we'll see how it goes. And Nelson said, nope, I'm going to be in the thick of it. And I said, well, tell you what, why don't you put the victory behind this other ship and let the other ship be the first one into battle and thus take the brunt of the damage. And then you'll follow right up behind. And that way, nope, nope, nope. Victory is going to be right in the very front. We're going to, you know, always go straight at them. Uh, That's another Patrick O'Brien quote uh, attributed to Admiral Nelson. So he took command of the victory he was on on deck and they they closed with uh the other ships the other ships began to fire upon the victory as soon as it got into range and victory took several hits uh withstood them i mean it was fine uh they did start killing a lot of his men though his Mm -hmm. clerk died almost immediately his assistant clerk died shortly thereafter and then nelson ended up being shot by a sharpshooter on one of the other, uh, on, on the Redoubtable, I believe, was was the ship where the sharpshooter was. And, and they, the, the guy, it, also Nelson was told, by the way, you don't need to wear your coat that has all of your, your medals on it. Because, because that, that I, makes you a target? Yeah, and he said, nope. It's too late to shift coats, and plus, these are uh, military orders here, so I'm wearing it. He got shot uh, in the chest. It hit his spine. Uh, he was taken to the Orlop deck with a surgery deck. Uh, where he said that he expected he would die because he said he could feel blood every time his heart beat. He could feel blood starting to fill up his chest cavity. Oh, yeah, that's not good. Uh, he was he had lost all feeling in his legs and he was getting very weak. He was feeling hot and thirsty. So they fanned him and brought him uh, uh, essentially lemonade and wine uh, for him to drink. And he kept on asking about how the battle was going. And uh so the battle continued above decks and, uh, and he held on for three hours after being shot. Um, still wasn't entirely sure how the battle was going to, to come out. He had made his arrangements telling, uh, telling his crew to leave all of his things to his mistress back home. And then he died and the victory ended up being victorious along with the other British ships. They won that battle despite the overwhelming odds. Nelson was revered as an incredible hero. He was his his loss was mourned throughout the British Navy. Uh, people went on about how this this man who had shown great bravery through multiple engagements uh, had died so heroically. Some people might say it was a little cavalier that he had a lot yeah. of opportunities to perhaps uh, have a more prudent approach, but it certainly doesn't make as heroic a story. Um, right. And I don't mean to disparage Admiral Nelson. He was clearly a military genius and I am not. Uh, <laughs> he was he was. And, I, and ultimately, you could say 
he was not willing to put his men through something that he himself was not willing to do. Uh, sure, sure. So, There's certainly something to be said for that. And uh, who knows what the outcome of that battle would have been if it had not been for, for that decision of, well, of, sure. of putting that really amazing warship on the very front of the line. If nothing else, I mean, you could inspire your your men by the fact that you are that you're you're out so there. out. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty incredible. So uh, we ta- said that in 1808, it was uh, refitted again for service in the Baltic. It was then uh, uh, retired as a harbor service uh, vessel for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And then in 1922, after you know, more than more than a, a century of being in service in one form or another, the HMS Victory was placed into dry dock permanently. And uh, what that means is that it's it's placed up on scaffolding um, and mm. it, n- no longer in the water. Yeah, usually dry dock is where you bring a ship to to do repairs, to scrape off barnacles, to make sure that all the paint is smart, as they would say, smart as paint. Mm-hmm. Um, but now she's a museum. You can go and visit the HMS Victory. You can walk the decks and explore it and see what the conditions were like. You can see how low the ceilings were on the gun deck and the fact that you had to watch your head or else you, you bonk it. <laughs> oh, um, you know, we, we are a little bit taller than they were back then. But, right. But um, but yeah, yeah. She and, and as Simon said in his email, she is the oldest commissioned warship in the world. Yeah. Pretty impressive. So if you ever have the opportunity, you should definitely go and visit the HMS Victory. Uh, one of the the really interesting, uh, you know, warships of history and, and certainly one that I would love to visit. I have not been aboard the Victory. I've been aboard. Uh, some other famous warships, uh, the Constitution, for example, but mm-hmm. not not the Victory. So I'm hoping one day I'll be able to visit it. Uh, yes. And if, if you do want to do that visiting, I recommend that you go to the historic dockyard at Portsmouth in yep. the UK. That's where you can find her. It would be cruel of us to send you there and she wasn't there. But don't worry. We would never do that. No, to we you. wouldn't do that to you. All right. So that that wraps up this discussion. So, yeah, you might wonder, well, how did that have to do with technology? But truly, I mean, this this. Technology, this this naval technology, is what shaped world events. And uh, yeah, it might not be an iPhone or a uh, you know an IBM computer, but it still falls in that realm. We love being able to tackle some of these historical uh, ideas once in a while. So, Simon, uh, thank you so much for the suggestion. Yes, yes, especially when they involve uh, Jonathan getting to do pirate voices. Because yeah, that's really yar. So, yeah, guys, uh, if you have, by the way, I, I know that the the quote unquote pirate accent is. <laughs> Not what they sounded like. That's thanks to Treasure Island. But anyway, uh, why don't you send in any ideas you might have for future episodes of Tech Stuff. If you want to do that, and come on, admit it, you've always wanted to. So you do. Here's here's what you gotta do. You gotta send us an email. That address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. Our handle at all three is techstuffhsw. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 